Hi, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 2 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we put League and Roberto De Zerbi, disciple, under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We considered 16-year-old Lamine Yamal's prodigious potential. We dissected Rudy Garcia's Neapolitan chapter and we unpacked Granite Xhaka's integral role at Xabi Alonso's high-flying Bayer Leverkusen. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order. As always, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. You find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Just one brief housekeeping point, I suppose, before letting the episode take centre stage. I'm currently on holiday in the most rural northwestern corner of Wales, on the Welsh coast, just over the water from Dublin, actually. And while it's been lovely, while the weather's been fantastic, the internet connection has been rather unstable. So while we did try to record the podcast all in one go and with all of us together virtually, that wasn't quite able to happen so we've worked some podcast magic we've done some podcast maneuvering shall we say and we're able to bring you the end product in a slightly unorthodox way but we're able to bring it to you nevertheless so hopefully you still enjoy the episode hopefully you still learn a thing or two or perhaps even three and yeah hopefully you come back again in a fortnight's time with that housekeeping point out the way i will now let the episode take center stage hopefully you're all staying safe hopefully you're all Staying well. Enjoy. Welcome along to the Road to Nowhere podcast. Ali has been stolen away from us by the uh, weak internet waves of the Welsh countryside. But my name is Rudy Barlow. I'm joined by Michael Jones. How are we doing this evening, Michael? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, it's a shame not to have Ali with us. Maybe got a bit distracted by the nice weather, but knowing him, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be the case. Um, but yeah, what a beautiful day here. How is it in Spain, Barlow? Yeah, it's pretty great, to be honest. It's about 20 degrees since uh, Spain when it uh, rained quite a bit. It's been pretty uh, Scottish weather, which I'm actually not too bothered about after a long, hot summer. Um, yeah, maybe Ali was just kind of faking it. You know, you do that... For, Kind of, oh, you're breaking up kind of thing just to, to get off the phone to somebody that you're sick of. But uh, but we'll give Ali the benefit of the doubt. Um, we'll say that he he was interested in my Spain section. Um, but uh, we're, we're going to talk about Italy with yourself, Michael, as ever. Last season's Scudetto winners, Napoli, suffered their first defeat under new gaffer Rudy Garcia as they succumbed to a 2-1 loss at home to Lazio on match day three. Garcia's appointment following Luciano Spalletti's departure caused a bit of a stir against the backdrop of Napoli's first league title since 1990. From what we've seen so far, Michael, what are some of the former Roma bosses' 
key priorities in Naples as he navigates this new Neapolitan chapter? Yeah, well, I guess one of the first and maybe the most obvious ones will be that he needs to find a way of getting one over former Napoli boss Maurizio Sarri because Sarri also enjoyed um, quite a successful run against Napoli last season for Lazio doing the double. And there weren't actually too many differences here between what we saw with Spilletti's Napoli performances against Sarri's Lazio to what we've seen with Garcia's. But certainly, you know, people will remember Napoli's exit to AC Milan in the quarterfinals of the Champions League last season, a competition that people thought they would at least have a very solid run for the final, given it would have eventually have been all Italian opposition and Napoli ran away with Serie A. And yes, Berlatti's departure has been massive, really. I mean, there were signs that it was coming there, I think, sort of signs of fatigue in his press conferences, in his press post-match interviews. And, you know, I think he is the kind of manager who, having not won Serie A before, and is a real sort of huge football fanatic, if anybody's seen his football shirt collection, as well as just one of many examples as to why, that he certainly struck me as the guy who would want to go out on a high. And, you know, given this was their first league win in 33 years, it certainly was that. And Garcia's coming in, in many ways, he's coming into Napoli in a great position because unlike maybe some of the previous jobs he's taken up, including his last job in Europe, which we'll come on to a bit, in a bit more detail at Lyon uh, a few years ago, in France, he's he's inheriting a really, really good team. He's winning a, inheriting basically for the most part a title winning team. And then the flip side of that is that there are huge expectations in Naples now, certainly much higher than what Spalletti's were when he arrived at the club and he was able to, you know, outperform those. And he really sort of did that super emphatically and even with his predecessor in Gennaro Gattuso I think Garcia's coming in with huge expectations albeit his appointment itself has been quite underwhelming and yeah in that defeat against Lazio I mean Luis Alberto for Lazio was absolutely sensational Napoli enjoyed over 60% of the possession but were largely restricted to shots from distance and despite getting the score to 1-1 through a deflected effort through Peter Zielinski, a player who looked like he was going to be departing possibly for Lazio in the summer. It was Alberto's brilliance, um, which led to him scoring and assisting a goal or creating the opening um, for the second goal in the game. And one of the really concerning factors I found in that game was sort of Lazio's ability to just kind of run through the Napoli midfield when they were able to break the approach the game with quite a clear and coherent counter-attacking plan, which worked to perfection against Napoli and really on a larger scale may have set a bit of a blueprint for other teams to follow. You know, there were similarities between watching that game and watching Napoli's performances versus AC Milan in the Champions League last season. So in terms of that, I think he's got to sort of understand and get a a bit of an understanding as to how to make that midfield slightly more compact, how to make it more counter-press counter resistant. And I think also one of the things that the maybe the huge challenge that he's got that 
Spalletti didn't have is that he doesn't have maybe that world-class centre-back in the ranks that Napoli have possessed for years upon years. You know, for large parts, Khalidou Koulibaly, he's now at Al-Hilal in Saudi Arabia, but obviously spent last season at Chelsea. And then they lost Kim Minjai to Bayern Munich for quite a hefty sum over the summer. Currently, they're playing with Juan Jesus, who for the large parts, whether it be at Inter Milan or Napoli, hasn't really been seen as sort of a first-choice centre-back at either of those clubs. And although they have signed another young Brazilian defender in Netan, he looks to be more for the long-term he signed from Red Bull Bragantino in Brazil. And that certainly could be an exciting signing if you sort of look at Bragantino's recent sort of scouting repertoire in Brazil and their climb through the divisions. But I think that's maybe two of the key issues. I think some of the other issues is that we saw in terms of going forwards last season, like we said, they weren't very incisive. Maybe they were slightly better in the previous game against Sassuolo, albeit they're playing against 10 men. But as the season developed and the likes of Krejci's Karavetskelia and Victor Asimian kind of developed into these you know, Calcio superstars and, you know, becoming really famous faces around the world. I, I certainly got the impression through watching them that maybe as a result of that, the, that may have had a bit, of, a bit of a mental effect on them also. And in the sense that maybe both players had become a little bit more selfish than from that sort of beautiful in-sync link-up play that we'd seen in the first half of last season, which, you know, ultimately gave Napoli a huge advantage that they were largely able to preserve for the second half of the season so he's certainly got to find a way of getting those two back to their best to see me and scored in the opening day did score against us well also will be it that was from the penalty spot and yeah one of the things i'm I guess i'm most curious to see is how napoli will fare in big games this season i, I think if you look at sort of garcia's stint at leon um he has shown he's a manager that's kind quite capable of you know getting relatively consistent results with a team. Of course, he won the league title with Lille in 20, back in 2011, which is really where he made his name and had a rather, largely successful three-year spell in Rome with Roma as well. But in terms of that big game management, his first season in Lyon was quite a bit of a write-off. They got battered by PSG twice. Many people will remember that defeat over to Manchester City where they actually played a 3-5-2 which is unlike the 4-3-3 largely used there or the 4-3-3-1 and the 4-3-3 he used at Napoli but that was also sandwiched between defeats to Juventus although they beat them on aggregate and also a 3-0 defeat to Bayern Munich but anyone who remembers that Bayern Munich team in 2020 will remember they were absolutely flying during that lockdown period but yeah how Napoli do approach those big games they've got the mouthwatering tie against Real Madrid in the group stage. I'm kind of curious to see how he will approach that defensively, whether he will trust the likes of Fantasies to play um, against this sort of new look Real Madrid front line. But he, he's certainly got a job on his hands. And without that sort of sincere and full backing from the Neapolitan fan base at the moment, it's going to be really interesting to see what um, how he gets on. I certainly don't think the early signs suggest it's going to be disastrous by any means, but you know, I'd be very surprised if he's able to follow on from all the amazing work that Spalletti's done. Yeah, he's a manager that definitely divides opinion, Rudy Garcia, and uh, he's, he's certainly got an interesting job on his hands. How do you uh, become the, the follow-up act to Spalletti's kind of title win after so many years? As you say, 
Um, two CDI's perennial overachievers clashed over the weekend, looking to improve on altogether underwhelming campaigns last time out. Sassuolo emerged victorious with a much-needed 3-1 win against Marco Baroni's Hellas Verona side, who had begun this term with two wins despite their flirtation with relegation last June. Alessio Dionisi, at the helm of Inero Verdi, faces a defining season in the shadow of his predecessor, Roberto De Zerbi. Michael, what can we reasonably expect from Sassuolo at this juncture, and do you think they have what it takes to meet those expectations? Yeah, I think Sassuolo really burst onto the scene under De Zerbi, it's safe to say. They'd had a few successful seasons before by even getting to Serie A and then you know, doing well under Eusebio de Francesco, who's maybe not had the best um, managerial stint since. But yeah, Dionisi's now into his third season with Sassuolo. Last time we talked about Allegri and Mourinho, who both started at the same time um, also. So a bit of a parallel there as well as these sort of third seasons go. And I think that maybe indicates that, you know, Dionisi by and large hasn't done a terrible job by any means with Sassuolo. But in terms of sort of his longevity in the job I think that's maybe another question but one of the things they've certainly not been helped with is player departures you know after his first season at the club they lost Gianluca Scamacca and Giacomo Raspadori to West Ham and Napoli respectively Scamacca is now back with Atalanta as we mentioned last time out and you know Sassuolo have regularly lost attacking talents this time they managed to keep what looks a really exciting front line but in the process of that, they lost Davide Fratesi to Inter Milan. And they also lost Maxi Lopez to Fiorentina. And Fiorentina, I guess that will be a particularly envious one for, or a bitter one for Sassuolo fans to swallow because you look at sort of where for Fiorentina where are now compared to where they were back in 2021. And the teams seem to have very much switched positions, albeit Fiorentina have had that sort of really successful run in the Europa Conference League last season so in that respect you know it, things maybe don't look super positively in there already um but um, I, I I think there are reasons for Dionisi to be more confident this was a team that sort of midway through last season trying to adjust without that front line that had been so important for a team that have largely heavily invested in their attackers opposed to defense over the not just Dionisi's tenure but before that with Deserbi and could even go to Di Francesco all the way back to him with that kind of attack-minded um, policy, which has made them, you know, a really attractive team for neutrals and for onlookers of Serie A over the years. But I think that was certainly an adjustment period. They have never been that good in defence. Crosses is still something they really struggle at dealing with. But, you know, they were able to turn that season up around and finish a rather respectable 13th when you consider sort of how tightly packed the Serie A table was between about 9th to 15th. So they come into the season with more confidence. One of the sort of huge causes for optimism last season was Armand Loriente. He was assigning from Lorient uh, in 2022 and very gradually they were very sensible in sort of securing him on a long-term deal despite not being hugely proven at the point of signing. He looks to have already had quite a big impact this season. He looks impressive despite the defeat against Atalanta. And in this win against Hellas Verona, he was sort of a constant threat. And 
what that has really done for them is that it's taken all the focal point away from Dominica Berardi, who was on the score sheet twice in that win against Alex Verona, albeit one from the spot, although he did win the penalty, and then another goal that he took really nicely at the at, at the near post. And then you've got Andrea Pinamonti in the middle, who's kind of seen as the successor to Scamacchi. They had a really successful season on loan at Empoli um, before joining permanent, well, joined permanently this summer, but spent last season on loan at Sassuolo with the option to buy. And he only scored five goals in his maiden season, but he's started to pick up. He got on the score sheet against Hellas Verona, a team that last season would have just struck you as a team that would have caused all sorts of problems to Sassuolo, you know overlapping runners, a counter-attacking team, an effective counter-attacking team. At the moment, it's Cyril Ngonja play we mentioned last season. He got on the score sheet, albeit from across, but directly from across, but largely they defended well. And then there is a really exciting prospect in the middle of the pitch in the form of Daniel Baloka, who has signed, he's, I think, 22 years old and signed from... Frosinone, who got promoted last season under Fabio Grosso and was one of the star players there. He's an Italian-Romanian international. He made his Romania debut last year, but then when Roberto Mancini mentioned about um, calling him up into one of his sort of huge 40-man squads, Balocca announced that he no longer wanted to play for Romania, although he's yet to make his Italy debut. I'm sure sort of followers of the Republic of Ireland national team will probably sympathise with um, Romanian fans quite a bit there because you know, not only is he sort of a midfielder in the mould of Declan Rice in terms of his playing style, but he also looks a really exciting prospect as well. And in the game versus Hellas Arona, I thought he was really good at breaking down um, sort of their play in midfield and getting them on the front foot. And what we've not seen too much in Serie A, but what anyone who sort of will have seen clips from him in Serie B will know, he's also got a mean strike on him as well so I, th- I think that's a really exciting signing and then you know they've made exciting additions elsewhere Christian Valpato who was one of the young Italian players to break through Italian Australian player under Jose Mourinho when Roma was struggling um, and I, I think what maybe the refreshing thing is for DNEC and the board is that we may be seeing other projects even the likes of Atalanta in recent years have a real shift intact when it comes to recruitment policy um other examples maybe such as Fiorentina, although they've probably done it for the better, but teams have had that shift in terms of how they're looking to recruit. But Sassuolo have been really consistent in that sense. And I I, I think the signs are there that, you know, the, the front line is ready to score a lot more goals this season. And if Balocca can live up to Fratesi, who was maybe their best player last season, he's now gone to Inter Milan, then they could be in a real place to start pushing for the top 10 again. They've had a tricky start to the season um, with defeats to Atalanta and Napoli, although they were playing with 10 men for most of that game versus Napoli, as we mentioned earlier. But I think the signs are there. They've got a bit more of an easier run going forwards for the next few weeks. And, you know, I'd, I'd certainly keep your eye on Balocca, Volpato, and also that front line, despite the sort of very well-known Berardi dominating the headlines on the right. Very fascinating to see how Sassuolo get on and a lot of kind of interesting uh, characters that have probably kind of pricked up the ears a bit from through the years in Serie A. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks very much for that, Michael. The eagerly anticipated Milan derby is on the horizon after the international break. 
pitting AC Milan against Inter Milan. Both teams have shown impressive form over the first few matchdays of the new Serie A campaign, with both picking up maximum points from their opening three fixtures. In this mouthwatering early season clash, where do you anticipate some of the key battlegrounds to be as these Lombardian giants lock horns? Yeah, it's going to be a mouthwatering early season clash. And they're two teams that had mouthwatering transfer windows, I guess, for different reasons as well. I, looking at these two Milan teams, despite Napoli's dominance last season, these were, you know, not only with the Champions League runs, but also with their form in Serie A towards the back end of last season when they're both able to secure top four spots. You know, they were two of the most impressive teams coming into the back of last season, despite maybe having spells of inconsistency, you know, Milan not being able to hold on to their Scaletto and into Milan not being getting as many points they had done in the previous three campaigns also. But, yeah, real signs for excitement here. Both teams have looked fantastic. Inter Milan are coming off the back of a 4-0 victory over Fiorentina which we'll come on to a little bit more in a moment. And AC Milan defeated Roma 2-1, which the scoreline probably doesn't underline just how impressive AC Milan were in that performance. And again, where they were actually playing with 10 men for about a third of the game as well. But yeah, Inter Milan defeated Fiorentina 4-0. One of the new signings, although he only scored one of the goals and Lautaro Martinez scored two, Marcus Taram was absolutely outstanding in this game. He scored a sensational headed goal, very reminiscent of Romelu Lukaku for this um opener Romelu Lukaku in his prime maybe not the one we may be about to see in Serie A this season um from an in-swinging crush from Federica DeMarco on the left-hand side and just adjusted his body beautifully kind of had to arch his neck whilst in mid-air backwards to that still connected with it perfectly couldn't have been any better and the ball just rocketed into the far corner he then set up the second goal and won the penalty for the third and was just a constant menace throughout. And it's not just that kind of relationship he's already built up with Lotaro Martinez that looks exciting. It was him who we set up for that goal. But also his, you know, his energy that he brings to the team. He's a brilliant ball carrier. And he looks like now he's maybe playing in sort of a higher level club team with no disrespect to Borussia Mönchengladbach, but certainly the impression we kind of got from Ali at times um, in previous seasons was that the responsibility is becoming more and more on him and we saw a few signs of him with the France national team but yeah that will certainly be an interesting one I mean it looked like initially one of the main storylines for this game would be how he'd get on against Bikai Tomori Tomori will be absent for the David Della Mandanina because he got sent off he got two yellow cards versus AS Roma and it looks like Pierre Kalalu will partner with Malik Tiao and that could be a really intriguing battleground for this game because the two of them, are, as, as a pairing, are relatively inexperienced. We saw Tiao break through last season and Kalulu has been a breakthrough, I guess, for a, a slight longer period of time. But normally Tamori has been by their side or they've played together but in a back three. So that will certainly be one of them. Um, I guess one of the easiest ways to draw parallels for this one, though, and to sort of base of off how we can look at it for this season is maybe looking at those Champions League games where Inter Milan came on top. And I think not many people would have thought that, seeing the way that AC Milan sort of tactically outdid Napoli, but it's completely vice versa for that tie, where Inter Milan not only had the sort of width to really hurt AC Milan, but they also had the midfield runners 
in the forms of Nico Barella particularly, but also Mkhitaryan was particularly um, impactful during those games. He's been a regular starter. He started in that game versus Fiorentina as well, but also the likes of Bastoni and DeMarco driving from the left side of defence and Dumfries just bumming down the right. Um, that's become quite a regular fixture in this in Simone and Zaghi's side now. And one of the really interesting aspects I'm 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 curious to see about this is that for the time being, it looks like Sandro Tonali's replacement has been Ruben Loftus Cheek in midfield, who surprisingly to me a little bit, although maybe not given sort of how English players have fared in Serie A, is that Loftus Cheek has made a really positive start to life in Lombardy. And he you know, he he won the penalty for AC Milan's opening goal versus Roma on the Friday night. And he was a constant presence. You know, Rafael and Teo Hernandez were both sort of bemoaning Stefano Pioli's decision to withdraw him partially partway through the game. But, but one of the things that I think he's really going to be tested with is how he's going to fare defensively against the likes of Barella. And, you know, especially if he is going to be on the right-hand side, more likely DeMarco sort of bombing past him the whole time and whether he's going to be able to live with that. One of the other players that they've a new feature in the midfield is uh, Tiami Reinders, signing from AZ Alkmaar, really sort of exciting, but I guess under the radar player from um, their team last season. He's another player who, again, has looked very tidy on the ball. He's played slightly more advanced than this AC Milan team so far, but... A player who, if you look at his sort of tackling numbers, he was in the ninth percentile for um, making sort of tackles in an individual one-on-one battle and stuff. So in terms of how he's going to fare in that one, I think they're really going to be tested. It's going to be a baptism of fire for the midfield. And that's him. The one aspect, though, of AC Milan that I think is really exciting going forwards is Christian Pulisic, another new signing's impact on the right-hand side. And when teams played against AC Milan successfully, they largely managed to nullify the impact of Raffaello. Calabria did it, um, not Calabria, sorry. They did it brilliantly in the um, over the course of the Champions League games. But they, one of the things that has always haunted AC Milan in that sense is that they haven't had the other option on the right-hand side. And Pulisic seems to really, as he did do at Borussia Dortmund and Chelsea also, I must add, he does seem to be a player who makes really fast starts when joining a new club. And I guess this derby couldn't come at a better time for him. So how they can handle that as well. I think from AC Milan defensively, the main challenges will be what they faced last season. But yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting tie. I think the way the dynamics are going based up into Milan's performances is Fiorentina. I think it'd be more sensible to make them favourites going into this tie. But, you know, certainly one that could go either way in one that could set the tone for the rest of the season. Fascinating stuff, Michael. Um, good to hear about that. I'm sure the, the derby will be very good to Gianni Reinders. Um, according to him, at least, he did speak to Xavi in Barcelona as well before he joined Milan. So he looks like a, a real talent to watch. Um, thank you very much for the the detailed insight into, into the derby, into Sassuolo and Napoli free storylines that I'm sure will have been of great interest to our listeners. Um, we are going to move on to France. Ali is in Wales, but speaking about league, uh, we will see if the uh, the internet waves reach him there and if he can uh, work out a way of editing um, the French section from um, his hovel in Wales. Now, I'm sure it's uh, much more plush than that, but uh, we'll pass you on to Ali shortly.
France saw the summer appointment of Francesco Farioli as the new manager of Nice, which raised a few eyebrows. The 34-year-old previously formed part of Roberto De Zerbi's coaching staff at Benevento and Sassuolo and is regarded in some quarters as one of the most exciting young managers in Europe in his own right. And yet, Farioli enjoyed a tough start to life in the south of France, with Nice picking up just two points and scoring a mere two goals across their opening three league games. A win against a meek Strasbourg side on match day four did, however, get their season up and running. Taking into account the admittedly small sample size of the club's fledgling Liga campaign and Farioli's previous experience in the dugouts of Karagumruk and Alanyaspor, what can we expect from Nice under the Italian's guidance, Ali? Yeah, Barlow, before we look at Farioli's style and his start to life on the south coast of France, I do just want to speak about the 34-year-old's quite fascinating background. He was born in the Tuscan town of Barga in 1989 and when he was growing up he played as a goalkeeper with amateur side Polisportiva Margine Coperta but he gave up on that dream when still in his teens before going on to study a philosophy degree writing a thesis on football in 2008 at the University of Florence. Now he stayed at Margine Coperta as a goalkeeping coach for two years before working in the Italian lower leagues with Fortis, Juventus and Lucchese. He then found work in Qatar with the Aspire Academy and the national teams under 17s. Now, while he was working in Qatar in early 2017, he actually wrote an article about Roberto De Zerbi's Foggia, who won the Serie C title that season. Now, De Zerbi, who is of course at Brighton these days, was impressed by the article and offered Farioli a position, he was 28 at the time, he offered him a position in his backroom staff uh, as he was joining Serie A side Benevento. Farioli then followed De Zerbi to Sassuolo before parting ways and heading off to Turkey in 2020. Now he landed his first manager's role at Fatih Karagumruk before taking charge at Alanya Sport at the end of 2021 and it was during his time at Alanya Sport when he really I suppose caught the eye, he guided the club to their record points haul in the Turkish Super League. After a few months out of the game earlier this year, Nice then decided to appoint him in the summer in a move that felt ever so slightly tinged with risk. Now, thinking about Farioli's time in Turkey, he earned himself this reputation as an innovative, forward-thinking coach with little to no regard for tactical norms and people very quickly got very excited about him. His Alanya Spore side could quite fittingly be described as chaotic. Defensively, their expected goals against numbers were up there with some of the worst in the league, whilst in attack, their expected goals numbers and in particular their expected goals numbers per attempt were up there with the best in the league. I think a lot of people have perhaps focused disproportionately on the latter and in turn gotten carried away, shall we say, with the Farioli hype. To a certain extent, anyway, social media can do that. It can create ill-founded bandwagons. And when we put Farioli's time in Turkey under the road to nowhere microscope, I think we do start to see an argument emerge according to which Farioli is one such bandwagon. Now, I was speaking to friend of the podcast, Gavin Miller, who was, of course, part of the Pure Football movement. Now, Gavin and I removed ourselves from the 
social media echo chambers, shall we say, which perhaps propagated the, the Farioli hype and we really drilled down into the numbers behind Farioli's time with Alanya Spore and what we discovered was really quite alarming. So Farioli's Alanya Spore side conceded 70 goals in the 2022-2023 campaign. That was the most in the league. They gave up the third highest expected goals per shot faced. They were the third worst in terms of shots blocked, the second worst in terms of interceptions, the third highest in terms of fouls per 90 and the bottom five for passes per defensive actions. As well as serving as a collective red flag, all of this suggests that the team's shape was really poor defensively. They gave up big chances and in turn they conceded a barrel load of goals. Looking at Nice under Farioli, based on a small sample size, he does seem to have addressed some of the defensive issues. For what it's worth, they do boast the best expected goals against Tally in the entire league. In attack, their expected goals numbers are good on paper, sitting fifth for XG. But in terms of the all-important eye test, it does feel like the focus on shoring up the defence has somewhat hamstrung the team going forward so in that regard I suppose you could say there is a sense that the blanket isn't able to cover both the head and the toes to use that analogy. Now Dante's comments following the draw with Leon on match day three were quite telling so when he was asked by the interviewer about the static build-up and lack of rhythm with Nice's play Dante replied that's the coach's plan we train like that we play like that so yeah Uh, and the tone with which he delivered that answer suggested that he was perhaps taking aim at his new manager. I think as well we do have to note here that Dante is five years older than Farioli, which can sometimes complicate matters. And in the past, Dante has not hesitated to speak out about the club's management. His comments here in any event did betray a certain unhappiness. Sticking with comments made in the wake of that tepid 0-0 draw with Leon on match day three. I did find it really quite odd that Farioli noted Nice had registered more expected goals than Leon. Now, those comments to me seemed rather tone deaf, rather ill-informed. Quite simply, Barlow, the majority of match-going punters do not care about expected goals and actually it can be quite inflammatory, particularly after such a frustrating and disappointing, lacklustre performance. It can, yeah, it can be quite inflammatory to, to start talking about expected goals. It's, it's never going to go down well. That said, as Adam White noted in his column for The Guardian, whilst Nice lacked a cutting edge against Lyon, they did at least show a clear intention to progress the ball via their narrow fullbacks while aiming to stretch the Lyon defence through their wider players further up the park. Now, we can laugh at Farioli's reference to inspected goals, or rather expected goals in his post-match press conference, but he was right, I suppose. Had Nice been more clinical, they would have won comfortably and the narrative would perhaps have looked slightly rosier. The following week, things did appear to click into place against Strasbourg with a convincing 2-0 win. And that will provide the fans with some encouragement. But for me, we do have to caveat the result by noting that Strasbourg did look pretty feeble. Two poor away performances in a row for Vieira side might represent the start of a rather worrying trend for the club. Nevertheless, that result did give Nice their first win of the season with the added bonus of Teramoffi getting on the score sheet for the first time this campaign. Now, friend of the podcast, Luke Entwistle, wrote a comprehensive piece for Get French Football News previewing Nice's season. Do go and check that out if you're looking for some 
further reading now in that article Luke speaks about the team's lack of quality in defence Melvin Bard is simply not good enough as a starting left back Yusuf Atal on the other side of the back line too often finds himself injured and at 39 Dante is probably just about past it even if he does bring a wealth of experience and leadership qualities Further at the park, however, they do possess some real individual quality in the likes of 22-year-old midfielder Kefren Turam and the aforementioned Moffey. Just as well, we should probably mention very briefly the 18-year-old winger Bajadine Buanani, who is yeah definitely another one to follow closely this season. Still very raw, but extremely exciting when he does get on the ball. As a brief aside, before I wrap this section up, while... Farioli didn't play professionally as a goalkeeper. I still think he just about qualifies for membership with the rather exclusive club of goalkeepers who went on to become managers. Now, in that club, we have the likes of Michael's best friend, Yohan Lopetegui. We have the likes of Nigel Atkins. We have the likes of Nuno Espirito Santo. And, of course, the greatest managerial mind to have graced the Scottish game, Tommy Wright. Quite the club indeed. Anyway, <laughs> I've definitely not tried to shoehorn in another Kilmarnock reference there. That was, uh, yeah, a totally valid, a totally legitimate link to be made. On a closing note, part of me is slightly pessimistic about how far away will fare in the south of France. Nice are not quite as chaotic a club as, say, Lyon, but the Allianz would still represent a total baptism of fire for any coach, let alone one as relatively inexperienced as Farioli. You do wonder if he would perhaps have been better advised to have gone to Ligue 2 to further develop his knowledge of the French game and refine his managerial style. In any event, Nice and Farioli will provide us with an interesting storyline to follow over the course of the season. Okie dokie, we are going to take a quick break there. We're going to come back for the third section of the podcast. Rudy Barlow is going to tell us all about a couple of wonder kids lighting up La Liga. We'll be right back. They say necessity is the mother of all opportunity and there is no doubt that's playing a part here, but Xavi Hernandez could have selected Ferran Torres or, at the time, Ansu Fati or Ez Abdi ahead of Lamine Yamal, but instead he opted for the 16-year-old against Cadiz and Via Real. The first was a very good performance, the second was match-winning. Having now been called into the Spanish national squad, Lamine Mal is looking at breaking Gavi's record for the youngest player to appear for La Roja. Who is this kid, Barlow? Yeah, it's a good question, Ali, it has to be said. I mean, Lamine Mal, we saw him make his debut at the end of last season, a couple of really quite nice cameos, but they were just that, and it, we, we sort of saw the talent that he had in kind of brief flashes, but it's astounding just how casually he's slotted himself into senior football. He's now had three starts out of uh, the first four games for Barcelona. He came on at the end of the first and was a real factor. He was the most dangerous player since in those three games. He was a little bit more bottled up against Osasuna in the last game, but he was the match winner for them against Villarreal, won the Man of the Match award, the Boy of the Match award, as it should be renamed for him. Uh, But yeah, got uh, two assists. He, He hit the post twice. One of them turned into a goal as well. He was an absolute nightmare for Villarreal to handle. And generally when you kind of see a youngster come in to a first team, you see kind of the talent, you see the confidence, you see the things that he does well. But you don't really see them as kind of necessarily a major factor 
in the match itself. They'll do exciting things. I mean, with wingers or forwards, it's generally dribbling. It's generally kind of it's their their pace or, or, or some kind of daring that they've got. But with Yamal, you see the confidence not only that he has in himself. He's very calm. He's very composed on the ball. But also, you see just how often his teammates give it to him. Um, it's something we spoke about with Bellingham last time and him being only kind of 20, but the fact that Yamal is 16 and already his teammates have the trust in him to give him the ball quite as much as they do is astounding, frankly. I mean, even though Yamal has been marked out as one of the most talented academy products that Barcelona have, he's come into the side almost straight from kind of juvenile, the under-19s. He didn't really play for Barcelona Athletic last season too much a few appearances kind of towards the end of the season but wasn't kind of part of their squad and with Spain I mean he's been called up to the Spain side which I guess is part of the reason that we're now talking about him as well and he's played made 10 appearances for the under 17s played just once for the under 19s so he hasn't played at all for the under 21s so he's really kind of jumping a level here Yamal and he's part Moroccan part from Ecuadorial Guinea, his mother and his father, um, and he's been born in Spain and, and kind of raised uh, in the on the outskirts of Barcelona, a place called Mataro. So, so yeah, I think Spain were keen to lock him into international duty the same way as they have done with kind of the likes of Ez Abde, Munir Al Haddadi, um, Boyan Kirkic in his day as well. Um, obviously, <laughs> Munir and Ez Abde went on to play for Morocco, but. Spain are, are desperate to ensure that he is a Spanish talent coming through. Um, what does he do so well? I mean, he's, he's a really good dribbler, it has to be said. He goes past his defender pretty easily, he glides inside, he glides outside pretty well. The way I was kind of looking at it and describing it the other day when I was writing about him was that it's almost kind of serpentine in his dribbling because it's not as if he gets the ball and starts driving immediately. Most of the time he'll pick it up kind of from a standing start, he'll wait, he'll kind of drag the ball with his left foot and then wait for the defender's movement, wait for the run to kind of slot a pass in behind or he'll cut inside and then pick, pick out kind of a longer ball. That's what he did for Gavi with the assist in the Villarreal match where he picked him out of the back post once it broke down from the corner. Um, and, and yeah, he kind of waits for his moment to strike and I think that's, that's maybe the thing that inspires the most fear in defenders is because he knows he's quicker than you and he knows that if you make a move then he's probably going to get around you and if he makes a move then he obviously has that element of surprise. So, so yeah, he's a really talented dribbler, um, doesn't look kind of naive at all with the ball but he almost looks tentative with the way he carries it. Um, and then that leads to him kind of getting a yard or a step on a defender. Um, and the thing that Xavi has highlighted most about Lemming Yamal, the thing that he's been most impressed with himself, was that he says that even though he's so young, he almost always makes the right pass or the right move with the ball. He always, almost, almost always takes the right option. Um, against Villarreal in that match, he kind of had four shots. He completed all three of his dribbles. 92% of his passes were accurate, which for somebody that's main kind of task or main job is to break down the defence and play more daring passes, take more daring options, that's really quite impressive. And and yeah, I mean, the sky is the limit for Lamine Yamal. You don't want to put too much pressure on him. You don't want to load it onto him. Um, but at the same time, there were reports coming out of Barcelona earlier this week saying that he's the best thing they've seen since Messi. They haven't seen anything like it since. Um, personally, 
I kind of struggle to, to disagree with that assessment, even though we obviously need to be careful with him. And that ultimately for Xavi is going to be the big challenge because he started him in that game against Osasuna ahead of Rafinha, who was back from suspension. And it's really kind of hard to argue against dropping him based on performances. But quite clearly, you can't put a 16-year-old through an entire season of senior football through the rigours of that. We've seen what happened with kind of Pedri, with him being blooded in too early and playing too often. So Xavi's going to have a real task on his hand to not play Yamal, especially if he keeps up this form. And uh, Antifati, another one who's obviously now at Brighton. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's going to be fascinating to see just how he does. Moving on to another team and another exciting youngster, Girona, no doubt won many Hipsters Choice Awards last season, but they have started off right where they left off. Despite losing top scorer Tati Castellanos, Rodrigo Roquelme and Oriel Romeo, they are so far keeping pace and they might just have another star in the making on their hands, Barlow. Yeah, Girona, a very likeable side, it has to be said. Michel Sanchez, we've talked about him before. Uh, him and Kike Carcel, who's the sporting director, have been really very impressive since they came into the top division. And uh, if they have another season like they did last time around, another season like they're promising to just now, then I don't think either of Carcel or or Michel will be there that much longer, it has to be said. Girona so far, 10 points out of 12. They've uh, won three games, including a away win against Sevilla. Um, they're, I think they're the top scorers after Real, after Atletico Madrid. They're really, they've been very, very impressive, it has to be said. The way that um, they play, the confidence they play with. Bear in mind that they've lost a midfielder in Oriol Romeo, who's gone to Barcelona, slotted in, started every game and looked very at home. Tati Castellanos was their top goal scorer, 14 goals. He's gone to Lazio now. Um, and with Castellanos, it wasn't even his goals that stood out really for him. It was more kind of his work rate, his movement, the way he kind of affected the shape and the pressing of Girona. Um, but he's gone as well. Roro Raquelme has returned to Atletico Madrid. So they, they've had quite a few key pieces kind of move on this summer. And yet they've kind of not really missed a beat since they started. Artem Dovbik, exciting Ukrainian striker who... Um, is a real kind of physical specimen. He's huge, he's very quick, and he, he really kind of goes after the ball and, and puts defenders under pressure. Eric Garcia is coming on loan. Daily Blint, who I think he's not playing in the same position as Oriol Romeo was necessarily, and he's not necessarily fulfilling that same function, but in terms of kind of the, the makeup of the team and the, the more emotional side of it, I think he's going to be the one directing plays, certainly early on. He's looked to take on a kind of very much a directing role in the same way that Romeu was. And he had that experience, obviously, from Southampton and Chelsea. Um, but the player that I, I want to talk about most um, was Savio. Savino, he also goes by young, kind of 19-year-old Brazilian winger. And he's just been so impressive. I mean, it should be said that Girona have a, a bit of an advantage in the fact that they are part of the City group. They have links to City, they have access to talent pools and scouting pools that perhaps they might not otherwise have. Um, he's coming on loan from Tra in France. Um, first game against Real Sociedad, he looked a little bit raw, but you could see that there was something there. And ever since, he's been almost unstoppable. He got an assist against Hitafe. He didn't kind of get a goal contribution against Sevilla, but he hit the post and went on this mazy run. He, he's left-footed, but he kind of cut in from the left-hand side, going on to his right foot, beat three players, hit the inside of the post and 
were it not for Dovbeck fluffing his lines in pretty dramatic fashion, then he would have got an assist for that. But uh, but yeah, Savio has been really fantastic. And if you, I mean, it's only been four games, but I think I and quite a lot of others who are regular watchers of La Liga have seen kind of enough from Savio to think that, yeah, we've got a player here. And if he continues his development, if the injuries are good to him, then we could really have a star. And for Girona, I think, uh, I think it was Graham Hunter who was saying that the first thing that Carcelo will be doing is picking up the phone to try and saying, can we make this permanent? How much do you want? Um, and getting that deal do, done as soon as possible because I think ultimately he's probably going to go for quite a lot more money at some point in the next two, three years just based on what we've seen so far. Um, and, and yeah, I'd say just a, a little bit more Girona prop. Go watch them. They're one of the most exciting teams that I've seen play um, in quite some time over the last kind of 12, 15 months. Uh, the way, the kind of confidence that they have, the fact that they kind of build up with two and then a three at the back or sometimes three and two, it rotates around. Arnau Martinez, Miguel Gutierrez, former Barcelona and Real Madrid fullbacks, both of them come inside at points. At times you see them kind of getting into the box and if there's one team that I was to say is closest to playing total football in La Liga, it would be Girona. I all of their players seem pretty comfortable on the ball, regardless of where they are on the pitch. All of them seem comfortable taking it. All of them seem pretty happy just to to kind of really follow Michel's orders, the last word. And uh, and yeah, they've got some exciting players. Christian Stuani, some Middlesbrough fans might remember him. 36 years old, still going strong, top goal scorer in the club's history. He's still very useful. Um, and Viktor Sagankov, who was my tip, I, I wrote a little bit for a BBC column, um, before the start of the season and Sigankov is my tip to make it big this year he's got a, a wand of a left foot he I think he's going to be taking on key creative duties with Alex Garcia moving a little bit backwards to compensate for for Romeo's loss um, and and yeah I think he could have a really exciting season Alex Garcia is another one who's who's one of the best players in La Liga so so yeah go watch Girona one of the most fun and entertaining sides and Given the talent they have on the side, given that they are not the biggest club, it's uh, <laughs> savoured it well at last, I'd say. Enlightening and insightful, as always. Thank you for that, Barlow. OK, we are going to conclude part three there. We'll be back very shortly for part four. We're going to put Xabi Alonso's high-flying Bayer Leverkusen under the road to nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. In Germany, Xabi Alonso and Bayer Leverkusen came into the 2023-24 Bundesliga campaign with a level of expectation rarely seen at the Bayerina since the relatively heady days of the early 21st century, during which the club earned itself the rather unfortunate Bayer Leverkusen moniker. Buoyed by a record-high season ticket sales, Xabi Alonso's increasingly astute coaching acumen and the retention thus far of 20-year-old wonderkid Florian Wirtz the side from North Rhine-Westphalia have picked up a maximum points from their opening three games, with Dortmund stuttering and Leipzig still picking up the pieces after some of major departures. How might we assess Leverkusen's chances of challenging Bayern Munich for the Bundesliga title? To give you the short answer, Barlow, a lot will arguably rest on two things, keeping Xabi Alonso in the dugout and keeping Florian Wirtz fit. 
Taking a step back, however, and looking at the wider picture, there is so much more to dissect with this Leverkusen side. They won 5-1 against Darmstadt on match day three to make it three wins from their opening three league games. And they've actually only done that at the start of a Bundesliga campaign on two other occasions back in 2003-2004 and 2013-2014. Now, Alonso has gone with a sort of 3-4-3 formation and the exact starting lineup in each of those three games and I think that consistency, that continuity even over a small amount of games has lent itself towards giving Leverkusen a real cohesive look, the look of a team that has clicked seamlessly into place at the start of the new season. Now we have let Leverkusen get our hopes up in the past only for it to end in metaphorical tears and I'm thinking in particular of how fluid and at times irresistible they looked under Gerardo Seoan a couple of years ago, only for that to fizzle out with the terrible start to the following campaign and some embarrassing Champions League group stage performances before Seoan was ultimately dismissed. That said, there are a few factors now which make me think that things might be different this time around and I look at perhaps one of the more exciting signings in Victor Boniface shortly, but I do think we need to look Firstly, at the shrewd signing of Granit Xhaka. It's easy to forget that Xhaka is still only 30 years of age and while there were low points during his seven or so seasons with Arsenal, he was still playing at the top level, producing some quality moments. And I think you probably could really quite fairly say that Leverkusen, like a number of Bundesliga teams, have in recent history been a bit soft, lacking a bit of grit, a bit of bite, a bit of resilience, you might say, but the signing of Xhaka this summer, coupled with the arrival two years ago of Robert Andrik, will do a lot to address that. Now, Alonso deploys Xhaka at the base of Leverkusen's midfield in that aforementioned 3-4-3 alongside Ezekiel Palacios. Um, we've seen glimpses of Xhaka and the aforementioned Andrik playing together with Alonso, typically bringing the latter on after about 65 minutes or so. And Actually, the other day, saw a tweet comparing Zaka and Andrik playing together in midfield to two guard dogs with their teeth gnarling, and that comparison does feel apt. As Sepp Stafford Bloor noted in the Athletic, Zaka's role as the six is particularly integral when we consider Leverkusen's expansive style of play. The wing-backs are encouraged to get forward, and the centre-halves tend to maraud up the pitch, for want of a better word. And so Zaka has a lot of responsibility when it comes to covering space and thwarting turnovers. In addition to giving Leverkusen a much-needed bite, Zaka plays a key role in dictating play and controlling the pace of the game and in operating, I suppose, as the Swiss metronome within that midfield. He sits top of the Bundesliga this season for passes into the final third, top for progressive passes, top for goal-creating actions and second for passes into the penalty area. More generally, I think Zaka, or rather Zaka, with his experience and aggression, serves as the perfect enabler, if you like, for Leverkusen's younger players to thrive and, yeah, really bring the flair. So when we take all of that into account, there is absolutely, I think, an argument to be made that Zaka has been one of the most important signings, if not the most important signing across the Bundesliga this summer. Turning now to those younger players in the Leverkusen squad, it would be, I think, remiss of us not to mention the club's 20-year-old attacking midfielder Florian Wirtz. In the opening three league games, he's scored one goal and set up two. We've spoken about him already at length on the podcast on 
more than one occasion, shining a spotlight on how he's constantly scanning the game around him when he's not on the ball. And then when he does get the ball, how he's always picking the right pass at the right moment. He is, without doubt, a mercurial talent who's destined to go to the very top. His numbers speak for themselves. He tops the Bundesliga so far this season for goal-creating actions, progressive passes received and passes into the penalty area. He also sits top across Europe's top five leagues for expected assists. So he regularly gets the ball in exciting areas and more importantly, he shows real quality when he does actually get on the ball. Just as an aside, I think this summer arrival of 31-year-old Jonas Hoffman from Gladbach is also, in a sense, freed up Wurz by taking away some of the creative weight off of the youngster's shoulders. And across the opening three league games, uh, just looking at Hoffman, he's been deployed alongside Wurz in a sort of attacking two in behind Victor Boniface. And Hoffman himself actually sits in the 99th percentile for expected assists and the 97th percentile for shot-creating actions. So a really creative pair in behind Victor Boniface. I mentioned at the start of this season that Leverkusen need to try and keep Wurz fit. They need to hope that he stays fit. And on that note, he did miss 17 league games last season, 50% of league games last season. And it did feel like he was playing through the pain barrier as the club limped over the finishing line at the end of the campaign. So when he's fit and fully firing, I think, yeah, Leverkusen are an altogether more dangerous outfit and an altogether more exciting team to watch. Now, I alluded to Victor Boniface earlier, but the 22-year-old Nigerian forward has really hit the ground running at the Bay Arena since his summer move from Union Saint-Gilles. His two goals in the 5-1 win over Darmstadt were sumptuous striker play, to say the least. Great close control, good penalty box movement and clinical finishing. So, yeah, do go and check those goals out if and when you get the chance. In terms of Boniface's background, he started out at Real Sapphire in Nigeria before making his breakthrough in the European game at Norwegian side Bodo Glimt, where he registered 23 goals and 8 assists in 66 games between 2019 and 2022. He then moved to... Union Saint-Gilles in Belgium, of course, in the summer of 2022. And he actually, don't know if you managed to catch this, but he actually scored a hat-trick on his debut for the club in a UEFA Champions League qualifying game against Kragshvik. Apologies again if I've butchered the pronunciation there. He particularly caught the eye against Union Berlin in the Europa League last season, scoring twice and providing two assists across four games, group stages and knockout games against Urs Fischer's side. And he also scored a screamer, albeit a consolation, for Union Saint-Gilles against Leverkusen, his new employers. Yeah, so definite talent there. Coincidentally, Boniface actually finished as the joint top scorer alongside Manchester United's Marcus Rashford in the Europa League campaign last season with six goals in ten games. And those numbers saw him earn a place in the competition's official team of the season, I think. Uh, Jonathan Ta was maybe also on that team as well as new teammate. In terms of his style of play, the official Bundesliga website notes that he plays a bit like Robert Lewandowski, which really is high praise indeed. Uh, quote, Boniface is an all-round centre-forward, good with both feet, physically powerful, good in the air and with a surprisingly good dribbling ability. His clever movement and ability to lose his marker are also traits he shares with the Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich legend, unquote. 
when he came on against West Ham in pre-season, albeit a pretty meek West Ham side, there was an almost instant adulation, an instant connection with the Leverkusen fans. The club spent £17 million on Boniface, which in the current market seems like a total bargain. That he has reached this level and made such an effective start to life in the Bundesliga is actually all the more impressive when we consider the fact that he suffered two separate cruciate ligament injuries during his time in Norway, coupled with the passing of his mother while he was recovering from the second of those cruciate ligament injuries. So I think when we consider the adversity he, i.e. Boniface, has had to overcome, there is, I think, a natural desire for the Nigerian forward to succeed. His is a great story and spearheading this exciting Leverkusen side, the early signs suggest that he can go on to do great things. On a closing note, My main concern with Leverkusen is that they did run out of gas last season after showing promising initial signs under Alonso. They had that excellent run, let's not forget, from late February to late April in which they won 10 games in 13 matches in all competitions and you were really starting to think that they could somehow go on and secure Champions League football. And then with the season drawing to a close with a Europa League final within their reach and a top four finish looking increasingly possible, they quite simply capitulated, winning none of their last seven games across all competitions. That said, they have recruited excellently over the summer, addressing just about all of their problem areas, and the new recruits have slotted into the starting 11 seamlessly. I'm still not convinced, Barlow, that any team starting with Lucas Radetzky and goals will ever win a league title, and I say that not to be harsh, but, but to be realistic. But with Alonso in the dugout and a squad brimming with confidence and talent and in the form of Granit Xhaka and Robert Andrik, that bite that they've maybe previously lacked, Leverkusen do look well positioned to give the Bundesliga title race a right good go. I think on that note we will draw this episode of the podcast to a close. I will thank Rudy Barlow for his contributions, I will thank Michael Jones for his contributions and I will thank you, the listener, for your continued support. Until next time, goodbye.